Hi, and welcome to the RCH Kids Health Info Podcast, the podcast for parents about common child health concerns. I'm Dr. Lexi Frydenberg, paediatrician and your host for today, and I'm joined by my co-host and good friend, Dr. Margie Danshin. Hi, Lex. This episode, we're going to be talking about a very common and often frightening condition in children, allergies. From the Royal Children's Hospital, Melbourne, this is the Kids Health Info Podcast. Allergies are extremely common in children, both allergies to food proteins as well as to environmental allergens like pollens and dust mite. Although most allergic reactions are mild, it can be incredibly frightening as a parent to see your child have an allergic reaction. One of our worst fears as a parent is your child having a severe reaction such as anaphylaxis. That's right, Lex. I mean, as a paediatrician, obviously, I've seen anaphylactic reactions happen in clinic at the hospital. But actually, if I think back, one of the worst anaphylactic reactions that I have witnessed was actually of a child when I was picking up one of my own kids from school who ate a small bit of peanut butter sandwich. And it is really distressing for a parent when the child develops, you know, the symptoms of anaphylaxis which we're going to talk about. So I think it's really good that we're talking about this today. And I think it's really important for children who have allergies, but also for parents and the wider community to know what to look for and to know what to do if they see a child having an allergic or anaphylactic reaction. Because there is a lot of fear when we talk about, you know, a reaction to a food allergy or or pollens, as you mentioned before. And when you have kids sleep over who you know are allergic or might have their EpiPen there, as a parent, it's really quite anxiety provoking thinking about what foods to serve and what to do if something were to happen. Yeah. I'm not sure about you, Margs, but when I was at school, I don't remember anyone having significant allergies or anaphylaxis. And we had peanut butter sandwiches every day at school for lunch in my house. Yeah, that's right. And it's hard to know whether that's actually increased awareness around allergies and how to manage them or whether that increase is actually real. So to help us unpack the truths from the myths and shed some light on all things allergy, we are very fortunate to be joined today by Dr Joanne Smart, Head of Allergy and Immunology here at the RCH. Welcome, Joe. It's great to be here. Thanks for the invitation, guys. Joe, could you start by telling us what an allergist and immunologist does? So an allergist immunologist has been trained in looking at the common allergic disorders, things like eczema, asthma, hay fever, food allergy. But we also do the really interesting and complex but rare primary immune deficiency. So not just allergies, which is by far the bulk of what we see, but we also see the rare immune disorders where children have issues with fighting infections, for example. And what actually is an allergic reaction, Joe, in simple terms? And can you tell us why it happens? So an allergic reaction is when the body identifies things that are normally um, not a problem for most people, but where the body has developed an immune response uh, to have an allergic reaction. And that can be a food or it can be a thing such as a pollen, and we call them allergens. What uh, the body does makes allergy antibodies, which are these molecules that cause the immune system reaction that leads to all of the symptoms that we see when children, when people have an allergic reaction. And can you tell us what those symptoms are just and maybe the order that they often occur in as well? If we use food as an example, the most common sign that we see 
early as part of an immune system allergic reaction is a rash. The rash can be just some redness, but not uncommonly it's this raised, itchy, welty rash that we call hives. And can it occur anywhere on the body or is it normally on the face? Uh, it can occur anywhere, but for food, commonly it, it starts on the face, uh, but it can become widespread and involve the whole body. Okay. And then after rash, what, what other symptoms might develop? The rash is the scary thing that most people see first, and it really um, is quite frightening if you've not witnessed that before and seen that in your child. Other things that we can see include swelling, um, and also that's something that's very visible, very obvious. And that can sometimes occur around the eyes most commonly, can't it? Commonly the eyes, commonly the, the, the mouth, the lips, um, and the minute there's any lip involvement, parents you know get anxious and think, oh my goodness, my child might now now not be able to breathe. Some children, their voice changes and their tongue actually sticks out. It can be very, very frightening to see that. There's also the swelling that can occur where the child has touched the food protein to their face. And that's also quite common to have a rash in that area as well as swelling. So part of the job of uh, an allergist uh, is to try and figure out how significant we think these reactions are. And in fact, when children are first introduced foods, it's really common for them to get a bit of a rash where food comes into contact. And that doesn't necessarily always mean that that's an allergic reaction. But that that's a really important thing to try and tease out as to whether we think that's a real allergic reaction or whether it's just a contact rash, which is really common in infants, particularly if they've got a bit of eczema or sensitive skin. What are the other signs that we as parents need to look out for? There's gastrointestinal symptoms. So uh, children can get abdominal pain or vomit. There can sometimes be some diarrhoea. Um, but the concerning symptoms is when there's any evidence of airway involvement, so breathing system involvement. And that is where there's a cough. Um, a persistent cough is something that's uh, one of the uh, alarm bells that uh, we always teach parents about. Um, hoarse voice, wheezing, difficulty breathing, noisy breathing, any concerns about breathing involvement actually means that this child is having anaphylaxis. The other sign that is suggestive of there being anaphylaxis is where there's evidence of um, circulatory system involvement. So dropping the blood pressure in with infants, that can be just going pale and floppy. Um, but, you know, obvious collapse would be certainly very concerning. Okay. So it's really important as a parent to know what to look out for and to know what the difference between an allergic reaction is and anaphylaxis, which is the scary most That's sort of the one. severe end, isn't it? And you've described really beautifully, Joe, how you can move right from allergy and those early symptoms to the more severe end of the spectrum or anaphylaxis. And I often get asked by parents and, and friends, if my child eats a food that they might be allergic to, when will I see that first reaction? Is it straight away or could it be tomorrow? For it to be an allergic reaction, which is due to allergy antibodies, it has to be pretty soon after in eating that particular food. Delayed reactions the next day are generally not at all related to what they've eaten the day before. So Joe, when you say pretty soon, you mean in a couple of hours? Usually within 15 minutes to 30 minutes, but we generally say within an hour. And the other question I often get asked in clinic is, you know, is this an allergic reaction, say, to peanut butter because my child has had peanut butter once before and they were fine? Does the allergic reaction always occur on the first episode or do we often see it after the child's had it in their diet? 
It can occur on the first exposure. Um, certainly, uh, we do see children that react on their first exposure, but not uncommonly when children are introduced new food allergens, you know, the ones that are typical of causing food allergy, which there are a limited number of these foods, by the way. Most children can have small amounts, but as that amount is increased and they reach what we call the threshold dose, which is the dose that's required for the reaction to occur, then that might be the first time you see it. Okay. So Joe, it might be good to talk through some of those common foods then that, that cause allergy. So most food allergy is to eight or nine different food groups. So egg is the most common food allergen that we that we see. Um, the other food allergens, uh, milk, wheat and soy, they are the group along with egg that most children grow out of. So about 80-85% of children outgrow their allergy to egg, milk, wheat and soy by the time they're five. The other group of food allergens to peanut and tree nuts, sesame, fish and shellfish, are the ones that tend to be ongoing into adult life in 80 80 to 90% of children. And Jo, what about the environmental allergens? Environmental allergy is really common. These allergens are the things that drive things like eczema, hay fever and, and, and asthma. Children aren't born with these allergy antibodies and it requires period of exposure um, before you develop these allergies. So pollen allergy and hay fever would be really uncommon under two or three. Okay. So uh, these allergic type children often develop eczema early on and they may then go on to develop asthma or hay fever, but that's usually when they're a bit older. Yeah, that's correct. We call that the atopic march is the um, the, the term used to describe the progress uh, from development of eczema to then later asthma and, and hay fever. Jo, it's really interesting just picking up what you said before so food allergies don't often drive eczema. Is that what you were saying? Food allergy is commonly seen in children who have eczema, but food allergy is usually not the cause of the eczematous rash that the children have um, day to day. So you just mentioned hay fever, and now that spring is here and there's lots of pollens in the air, I think it's really important. One of the questions that I keep getting asked at the moment is the difference between a COVID, signs of a COVID infection, which we're dealing with, and hay fever. And it actually can be really hard to tell the difference at the moment. Yeah, and that's a really important uh, distinction to make, obviously, um, for lots of reasons at the moment, Lexi. And parents are commonly being requested by daycare and um, schools uh, for these children to have regular COVID tests. Um, But the children who present with hay fever, usually they have a, a, a history or a story of this time of year in spring, regularly getting uh, the symptoms of itchy, watery eyes, sneezing, clear, runny nose, not associated with fever, not associated with being unwell, but associated with being exposed to pollens in after being outdoors, for example. But Jo, I think it's important to say, obviously, if a child does have symptoms of COVID, that they still do have to have a test. But I think a lot of these children and any sufferer from hay fever deserves a prize at the end of all of this, um, given how many tests many of them have had. Yep, absolutely. If in doubt, check it out is the motto, of course, yeah. Okay, just going back to the difference between allergy and anaphylaxis, 
why is it so important we differentiated and and for parents to know what those signs of anaphylaxis or severe reaction are? Whenever a, a child has been um, diagnosed as having a food allergy, they're always given a management plan. And the type of management plan that we uh, give them is very much dependent on a number of different things. And the major thing is what has happened when they've had previous allergic reactions. I think it's worth at this point highlighting that in Australia and New Zealand, um, the Australasian Society of Clinical Immunology and Allergy has developed... Um, very clear allergy plans and anaphylaxis plans that are used across the board in every childcare and school. And that means that everybody is familiar with these plans who is looking after these children with food allergies or anaphylaxis. The plans are um, green if it's an allergy plan or red if it's an anaphylaxis plan. And we decide about uh, which plan to give the children on the basis of whether they've had any signs previously of anaphylaxis, as we've talked about previously, any signs of any breathing system involvement or any cardiovascular involvement with pale, floppy, dizzy collapse, then those children will automatically be given a plan with an EpiPen. But there are other things that we take into account, even in children who have not had anaphylaxis where we may decide to give them an uh, anaphylaxis management plan with an adrenal and auto-injector. Um, and that uh, includes whether they've got asthma, particularly if it's asthma requiring a regular preventer. And I think it's really important to make sure that any child who has asthma and food allergy has asthma that's perfectly controlled because that is a significant risk factor for more severe reactions. Um, the other thing uh, to take into account is if families have uh, ready access to emergency medical services. So, you know, if people live remotely, then we would uh, often give a, an, an EpiPen and anaphylaxis management plan in the event uh, that they did have a more concerning reaction. The other thing is age. We take into account teenagers, transition from primary school to high school, an age of increasing independence, which we encourage, of course, um, is a time where uh, sometimes... Uh, uh, if we think that the risk profile is um, more concerning, then we may decide to swap somebody from a plan without an EpiPen or adrenaline auto-injector to having one with one. So we do know that teenagers are risk takers. Um, we've discussed that many times and both Mark and I have our own teenagers, so we see that on a daily basis. So it's really important to have that conversation with the teenager, get them to understand their allergy or risk of anaphylaxis but also be aware that we have to be a little more cautious with those um, teenagers and we might prescribe an adrenaline pen in those circumstances. So just to go back, we have allergy plans and anaphylaxis management plans. We'll link those in our show notes. Um, but I think the important part about that is the treatment that a parent can give is different. So for an allergy plan, what's the main treatment options for an allergy plan, we often uh, recommend uh, parents have available antihistamines that don't make them sleepy. Okay. Um, there are lots of those available over the counter. And they come in both a syrup form for the younger kids as well as a tablet form for yep, the older. Absolutely. So, Joe, can you tell us a little bit about the adrenaline auto-injector pen and how you explain to parents and, and kids how to use it? 
up until recently, there's only been one that's been available in Australia and everybody, most people will be familiar with these. They're called EpiPens. More recently, there has been a second uh, type of these adrenaline auto-injectors released onto the market and this is called an Anapen. Um, both have uh, as the active ingredient adrenaline, which is the natural flight-fright hormone that we make um, when, for example, somebody scares you, you know, think about what happens. Um, you get that, you know, that adrenaline, what people call the adrenaline rush, where, you know, your heart races, you, you breathe fast. And so that's uh, what happens when you actually administer or give somebody an adrenaline auto-injector. It's very short-lived um, as the body breaks it down quite quickly, but it's very effective to reverse the bad things that happen when you're having a more severe allergic reaction. So how does the adrenaline actually work? What's it doing in the body? When you have a severe allergic reaction, you're getting tightening and constriction in your lungs and you're dropping your blood pressure. So when you give adrenaline, what that does is it reverses all these negative things that are happening when you're having an allergic reaction. So it sort of leads to the blood vessels squeezing um, and increases blood supply back to the heart, increases the heart rate, which increases your blood pressure and opens up the airway. So it's really um, important to remember that if your child's having a severe allergic reaction or anaphylaxis, the life-saving treatment is an adrenaline um, injection. Absolutely. And what we always um, try and teach and reassure our families uh, about is if in doubt, just use the adrenaline auto-injector. If you use it and it really wasn't necessary, it's not, a, it's not going to be harmful. And I think the other thing to remember is if your child has had an adrenaline pen, if you've needed to give it, you do need to call an ambulance and come to hospital because there is a chance of a second reaction. Exactly. Um, most of the time, one dose of adrenaline is is enough and it reverses all of the bad things but ha that happen. But it's important that children who have these reactions who are given adrenaline are seen by a doctor and observed for at least four hours after this reaction. So Joe, the important thing obviously is that the child has the EpiPen or the Anapen with them. So when you give a plan, um, you give two uh, pens, don't you? An EpiPen or adrenaline auto-injector needs to be with this child wherever they go. And the regulations are that one needs to be kept at school or childcare. And so that additional EpiPen um, should be with the child. And if they're young, obviously it needs to be in their nappy bag or in their backpack that goes with them wherever they go. And whoever is looking after them needs to know about the child's food allergy, needs to know how to identify an allergic reaction and needs to know what to do and how to use the EpiPen if need be. Can you explain exactly how the adrenaline auto-injector works? An adrenaline auto-injector is like carrying around an emergency dose of adrenaline that, you know, if you were came to a hospital, what we would do is draw it up in a needle and a syringe. But this is a, a device where it's available and readily usable in the event of an emergency where you hold it and press it to the thigh and then the dose of adrenaline is injected. And I think it's important to remember that most people will never use their EpiPen or never need to use their EpiPen, but it's still important each year to go through the technique just in case 
of emergency. Yeah, and that's the really important part about having um, regular review with um, either your GP or your allergist who will always go through um, and revise and remind you how to use the EpiPen uh, appropriately. So we've had a great listener question from Kim about anaphylaxis. Hi, my name is Kim. My question is around how to manage the anxiety in a five-year-old who is anaphylactic to nuts in terms of going to school and eating outside and just overall managing anxiety and nervousness. Thank you. Thanks, Kim. That's a really great question. And it's a really um, common uh, thing that we see with um, children of all ages who have had an allergic reaction because actually having an allergic reaction is quite a scary um, thing for, for them to have to have experienced. And so we as uh, doctors and you as parents really need to um, help them work through their um, their anxiety and the way to do that is by teaching them um, that um, once we know that they've got the food allergy we have to be very careful at avoiding um, that food and we just need to educate them that by simple uh, measures by double checking what we eat reading labels um, that we can keep them safe to avoid that that uh, food allergen allergen trigger. The other thing that we need to reassure them is if they do have an allergic reaction, we have uh, a, a number of things that we can do to make them better. Right. And I think that it's also important to know that the, a vast majority of kids might grow out of their food reaction. And as parents, our job is to keep them safe um, at, at this point in time. I think actually what I often see is it's the parents who have the anxiety about their child. Yeah. So I think that's a really important point, Lexi. It's really important that we identify and manage parents' anxiety as well because the minute uh, a parent is anxious, children detect that and they, 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 they can um, tell that, you know, mum or dad is really nervous uh, around uh, eating and the fact that they may have an allergic reaction. We, so we really need to be aware of that and try to manage that as best we can. And I find I, I try and spend a lot of time talking to the kids themselves about the allergies as well so that they have information to try and reduce this anxiety as well. Um, to reassure mum and dad, but also the child themselves. Children are very savvy, very young, actually. Once they've had an allergic reaction, once they've been told they can't eat a food, they very quickly catch on and they tend to um, uh, seek um, confirmation from uh, their parents or those that are looking after them that the food that they're about to have is safe and hasn't got the food allergen in it that uh, they cannot have. Okay. I think it might be a good idea at this point to mention a little bit about allergy testing. Many people think allergy testing just in case is a good approach. And let me say allergy testing is great to confirm a diagnosis of an allergy where there's a good story of somebody being exposed to the allergen and if it's a food, um, every time they're exposed, they have that reaction pretty soon after they eat it, typically with the rash and swelling and things like that. But if we do the test just in case there's an allergy, sometimes these tests uh, show up a positive result when in fact it's a false positive where there's no underlying allergy. If we get a false positive and parents start restricting foods, that can actually impact a child's quality of life. So, Joe, the million-dollar question, what can we do as parents to prevent our children getting allergies? 
What is the current recommendations for children in how to prevent them getting allergies? One of the major focuses um, for allergy prevention at the moment uh, is early introduction of allergenic foods. And if we go back 20 years, there was a recommendation to avoid these food allergens. So 20 years ago, um, new parents were told to avoid giving their children egg and nuts until after one or nuts until they were three. And that was advice that was made without much scientific basis. And actually, over the last uh, 10 to 15 years, it's become apparent um, and has been now well studied that delayed introduction of of these allergenic foods, so typically egg and nuts, um, it may increase the risk of uh, developing the allergy. And so that has led to reversal of those infant feeding recommendations uh, to now actually say, introduce Uh, solids from around six months but not before four months and at a developmentally appropriate age introduce the typical food allergens one by one. Okay. And so that would be egg and peanut. Um, Really important though to uh, highlight we don't recommend whole nuts until children have developed molars actually and so that's about five really. Okay. So right now we've got the recommendations for early introduction of the allergenic food somewhere between four and six months. Introduce one food at a time. Once a allergenic food such as peanut butter is in their diet, we often recommend that the, the family keep that food in the diet. Really educating the family um, about, and any carers about allergy, the allergy management plan and, you know, to read food labels. So, Lexi, that's a really important point. So once a child has had uh, a particular food allergen, and again, let's use the example of peanut butter, smooth peanut butter, it's not just give it at once and if it's okay once, then it's going to be okay. It's We don't really know how much you need to have how often, but we generally make, recommend having it in the diet two or three times a week. Okay. And Joe, you mentioned before about pregnancy. We do get asked a lot by mums, does it make any difference what they eat in their diet in terms of um, the risk of allergy in their child after they're born? The current recommendation is for pregnant mums to have a broad, well-balanced diet full of all of the food groups. There's no evidence that restricting food allergens um, leads to any uh, difference with respect to development of allergies in their infants or not. And just taking that one step further, after the baby's born and the mum may be breastfeeding, we oh, that's another issue that we often see is that mothers have very highly restrictive diets when they're breastfeeding. Yeah, and again, we don't recommend that either. Um, we uh, would recommend uh, important for, for breastfeeding mums to have a well-balanced diet. Um, uh, broad diet. Okay, we've got an, a, a great listener question from Kerry about the gut and allergies. There's a lot of information about the gut and allergies that is emerging. Will there be a cure for tree nut allergies via the gut and things like probiotics? Thanks, Kerry. That is a really interesting question. It's actually been an area of lots of uh, research here uh, at the Royal Children's Hospital and the Murdoch Children's Research Institute by Mimi Tang. To date, though, we don't have enough evidence for it to be used as a useful way for us to be able to cure food allergy. 
So Jo, now we have a, a question from Rosemary just about COVID vaccination and allergies. My daughter is booked in for her first COVID vaccination. However, I'm feeling a bit nervous and anxious about this given her anaphylaxis. I'm just wondering whether there's any problems associated with the Pfizer vaccination and her allergy. Rosemary, fantastic that you've got her booked in for her vaccine. Um, I think that there has been lots of concerns about uh, potential allergy and the Pfizer vaccine. Those who have an underlying allergy, uh, whether it be a food allergy or asthma, are not at increased risk of having any allergic reaction to the Pfizer vaccine and can be given safely with no um, real um, concerns. And Joe, probably also just to tell people that, of course, the risk of an anaphylactic reaction after the COVID vaccine is very rare. Um, and after the Pfizer vaccine, it's sort of estimated to be somewhere at five per million doses. So to reassure parents that it's still a very, very rare outcome. Yep, absolutely. And that would not be a reason not to get the vaccine. So really, I think that's very reassuring for parents who have children with anaphylaxis go ahead and book them in for a vaccination against COVID. Yes, the sooner the better. So Jo, it really feels like the number of kids we're seeing with allergy is ever increasing. Is that true? Yes, Lexi, it certainly does appear to be true. And we are seeing more and more children with early onset uh, food allergic reactions. I think it's really important just to finish with that for families who have a child with a food allergy, this is a real and a serious problem that needs to be managed well. And also for that child attending school or having sleepovers, obviously everybody has to respect that this child does have food allergy and really be aware of their management plan and how best to use that plan. I also think it's really important to appreciate that mistakes will happen and children will be given food or they will eat food that they shouldn't have eaten and they will have an allergic reaction. And that's why it's really important that whoever's looking after these these children know what to look for and what to do in the event that there is an allergic reaction. That's where it comes back to the allergy management plans. Thanks, Joe. That's been an incredibly helpful discussion. We've talked about how common allergy is and how frightening it can be for parents. So really understanding their child's allergy is vital. I hope that we've answered many of the questions that people have out there. We've got many helpful resources that we've linked in our show notes. And please, if you've enjoyed this episode, subscribe and even better, leave us a review. Thanks for listening. Information provided in this podcast is general in nature and is intended to support, not replace, discussions with your doctor or healthcare professional. If you are concerned about your child, please consult your local healthcare professional for further advice.